I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. I've always had a deep fascination with space in the heavens above. What is the Big Bang? Is there intelligent life out there somewhere? I put all of these questions and more to today's guest, Temple member Alberto Accomazzi, Principal Investigator for the Astrophysics Data System, operated by the Smithsonian and NASA. Alberto Accomazzi, welcome to TBA Now. Okay, I just have to put it right out there that a passion of mine for the past few years has been exploring the realm of astrophysics, uh, which is, to me, one of the most extraordinarily fascinating, exciting fields ever, ever. You know, I, I love Jewish studies. I love studying the Torah. But I got to say, looking into a whole variety of theories and expositions about the Big Bang, about gravity, about quantum theory and quantum mechanics, that stuff has really gotten my brain to open up in really new ways. And I mean, I could actually, you could just sit there and not talk and I'll just, I could give you a whole hour of why (laughs) I love it so much. And I think it's, because I, I love it so much that when I realized some years ago uh, that we actually had in the congregation a living, breathing astronomer, I thought, man, this is unbelievable. I would love to have a chance to hear from this guy about what he does and uh, so both specifically what he does and more generally what he thinks of the field and what's going on. And it's taken a while, Berto, but we finally... I gotcha, and I am so <laughs> excited. Um, so I, I wanted to begin by asking you just a couple questions about you and your family uh, before getting into the meat of the matter. Uh, so tell us, do you remember how long ago it was that you joined the temple? So it was about... 10 years ago, I want to say 12 probably. And one of the main reasons was, well, we've known our good friend Susan Glickman and Jim Glickman for a long time. So we knew of the temple and I believe we had visited the temple a couple of times prior to joining in. And then our children had gone to uh, the Rashi school. um, So they had a Jewish education and we were looking after transitioning to public school, we were looking for a community where we could have their bat mitzvahs and we could continue our Jewish experience, uh, you know, once outside of the, of the elementary school uh, education that we had at Rashi. So we, we just, you know, we always thought that you, get, you were a great rabbi and this community was warm and welcoming and we had good friends here, so it was really Quite a simple decision, if I should well, say. And I'm so glad that you decided uh, to be part of this community. And um, one of the things we know from your wife Andrea is that her skills 
uh, in American Sign Language, uh, and uh, we have uh, watched her speak, I guess is what you say, mm-hmm. uh, and so impressed by her vivacity and presence. And uh, and then you sort of more quietly standing uh, there and watching things. And um, obviously for our listeners, uh, both reading your name and hearing your accent, they might say, you know, hmm, probably not a Boston native. So tell us about where you grew up and your family of origin. Right, yes. So I grew up in Italy. Um, my parents are Italian. All my relatives are from Italy and grew up in a Catholic environment. I was an altar boy as a kid. So everybody I knew was pretty much in that um, realm of things, meaning everybody was Italian, Catholic, and so on. The fact that I I came to the U.S. more as a result of my education and the job opportunities that were offered to me when after, you know, towards the end of my studies at the university level. So I came to the U.S. in uh, the very beginning of 1989, and I thought I would be coming here to gain some experience. I had this job offer at the Center for Astrophysics, which is a collaboration of the Harvard University and the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, which is where I work right now. And uh, originally the thought was, I'm going to go there, I'm going to gain some experience, do some cool projects, and then I'll come back to Italy, presumably, and, um, you know, have a good position in some research institution. But as you know, um, things don't always go according to plans. And one of the Well, one of the major things that happened is that I met Andrea, now my wife, and I also realized that there were a lot of opportunities and uh, I really enjoyed the work environment that I found myself in. You know, eventually I decided that this was the place where I wanted to stay for multiple reasons. And once I think that the last nail in the coffin was once my first daughter was born, I just couldn't see myself moving back to the old country as much as I love, you know, the people there. And also that led to our decision, you know, through marriage and then becoming a father led to our decision that we wanted to have a Jewish family. So joining a temple became part of it. But I don't consider myself a very religious person. I've become agnostic after my years growing up in the Catholic um, tradition. And, um, you know, my knowledge and and thoughts about God is that there might be a God. It's not the God that one would consider uh, by traditionally reading the Old Testament or the New Testament. But clearly, I mean, some of the attraction of astronomy and the study of the universe comes from the sense of wonder of what is it that led us to be who we are and what 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 caused the universe mm-hmm. to be what it is it does you know it has all the elements of a miracle that we are here standing talking to each other you know developed as a species and as intelligent and social people that can have a conversation about the mystery of the universe it's it's uh, a, any question you know the the more that i uh, study and learn about astrophysics, uh, the more unbelievably miraculous this planet is and the life that's on it. And you absolutely prefigured the conversation about Mm -hmm. 
the stars, uh, creation, uh, the sense of the sacred in all of the ways those things are connected. But but before I get to that mm-hmm. little topic, <laughs> so what makes a kid look up at the sky and see more than just, oh, those are stars, how cool. What leads you into astronomy? Yeah, good question. So most people become astronomers. They tell you stories about how when they were kids, they looked up at the sky and they fell in love. And you know, at that point in their life, they decided, I have to be an astronomer. That wasn't me, but, but I, there was a strong influence in my life because my father's favorite hobby, he had multiple hobbies, but his major one was astronomy. So yeah. he, built, he was building little telescopes as I was a kid and growing up. And so at night, um, when the sky was clear, where there was something interesting, he would show us the sky in his home, home-built telescope. He actually made us look, peering through, through that um, piece, eyepiece, and looking at the moon, looking at the planets. So that was always intriguing, you know, that started a little bit this sense of wonder and um, curiosity. And then when it came time for me to decide what kind of education and and possible career I would have, I decided to study physics because, well, astronomy per se was not available at the university near where I grew up. I went to the University of Milan, which is a big state uh, university, but astronomy was required me to travel either further out and we couldn't afford for me to live um, that far away. So I studied physics thinking that it would give me really all the basic um, knowledge about a variety of topics and leaving the door open for pursuing astronomy further down the line or other areas of physics. And eventually yeah, eventually that's exactly what happened, that as, as I was um, having to decide what specialization I wanted to, to have, I found myself drawn both to computing. Um, I, I always liked to play with computers, and so it wasn't just, I was always good at math, but I always liked to apply math to some problems and try to solve them. So when, when computers became available, it was my first attempt to kind of code up something that um, I could use to, you know, solve a problem or make some plots or calculate something. Which sort of led directly to what you do now. Yeah. So um, that's, a, that's exactly right, because right now my job is um, one where I work in an astronomical observatory, but I run a project that collects data and publications in astronomy and astrophysics. So. We, we are funded through a grant from NASA to provide services and information to research astronomers. So we are the equivalent of um, PubMed or Google for researchers in astronomy who need to access data and publications for their research needs. So they're asking for really specific information about specific things that would require more personal attention from you and your staff as opposed to just, you're more like a research center for researchers. That's correct, yes. So um, what we have, my project is one of several 
They're called the NASA Astrophysics Archives, one of several online archives that NASA funds. And NASA is one of the agencies in the US that funds research in astronomy and astrophysics, as well as earth science and planetary and heliophysics and other things. But do you worry about the funding for NASA over time? Is that something that's always an anxious voice in the back of your head? Or do you feel like this nation has its act together at least about this aspect of the necessity for this kind of research? I, to be honest, I stopped worrying a while ago. Uh, there was, I mean, the latest election, meaning the one that took place in 2016, was a little unsettling because it was, you know, the fact that Trump got elected was somewhat unexpected by most of the people that I would normally confer with. And so nobody knew what that meant for science in general. But the truth of the matter is that, you know, nothing bad happened. Essentially, the the research that goes on within NASA is, I should say, most of it is non-controversial because it does not affect directly policies. Some of it does. The Earth Science Department yeah. that studies impact on the Earth about, you know, of different things such as climate change um, could have been a target of reduced funding or something like that. But I think astronomy has not been controversial for mo the most part. So we we did not notice any any major shifts in policy or priorities that affected us directly. Um, so I've learned not to worry too much about it because some things you can control and some others you can't. And so, you know, you always try the best that you can um, and then assume that the higher ups will, you know, value the work that you're doing and, mm -hmm. you know, you know, continue this quest in science. You know, it's a long arch to, to kind of study the universe. It's not something that one can do in four <laughs> years or in a generation. And so eventually, you know, through the ups and downs, I think, um, and, and also due to the fact that much of this research happens at the international level, astronomers don't really, um, you know, organize teams and projects around institutions or even, you know, country um, boundaries anymore. Uh, because uh, if you look at how people publish papers, they're often international collaborations um, that now involve, uh, you know, telescopes by NASA as well as ESA, uh, the Japanese, the Chinese have uh, an up-and-coming research program. You know, they landed on the moon, the Chinese. They're, so there's multiple countries and researchers at play. I downloaded a paper that totally caught my eye. The name of the article is Cosmic Flows 3, Cosmography of the Local Void. These are the authors of this paper. Brent Tully from Hawaii, uh, Daniel Pomered from Paris. You have Romain Graziani from Lyon. You have Helene Courtois from Lyon. Yehuda Hoffman from Jerusalem and Edward Shia from College Park, Maryland. Mm -hmm. So I, I look at this and I think, <laughs> oh my God, like look at this international kind of array of scientists. And then I've been looking at other stuff and it seems like this is more the common yes. uh, practice 
than anything unusual. What accounts for this international kind of cooperation and why is it happening in astronomy and is it happening in other scientific fields? I believe so. I can I can only speak about the areas that I'm more familiar with in physics, not so much maybe, but I think that's my general impression. And there's multiple things at play here. One one thing that um, we've noticed if you look at you know scientific publications is that the average number of authors for each scientific paper is going up. So there's more collaboration between people. It used to be that the lone astronomer would sit down and spend several months collecting data, a few months analyzing and then writing a paper, and he was the only person, usually it was a man, so it was a he, right. was the one person who authored the paper and then became a professor and, and so on. Now you have, now the research goes on in a much, much more distributed way. For one thing, there are very expensive instruments being used to collect the data. So you have billion dollar telescopes and, and satellites like the Hubble Space Telescope or the Chandra X-ray telescopes that NASA puts in orbit. So these are facilities that take millions of dollars to operate and billions of dollars to build. Therefore, the, the data no longer belongs to an individual who made the observation, but they're in public archives and they're disseminated and studied by everybody around the world, essentially. You can go and download the Hubble Space Telescope data tonight from your computer, if you wish. So there's more availability of data and there's more specialization. So each scientist will become an expert in a certain kind of data analysis or interpreting part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So you have X-ray astronomers, radio astronomers, gamma ray astronomers, gravitational waves are now a new technique to detect black hole collapses and mergers. So you have larger collaborations, greater specialization of skills and areas of expert expertise. And then there's the fact that the really national boundaries are no longer as big boundaries for us to surpass because it's really an international field where science is flourishing. So whenever I go to a conference, or except for the last year, when it, we used to go to a conference, you would always have international collaborators uh, give talks and, and just work together. More than half of the students and postdocs at our institution come from abroad, in fact. So they see coming going to the States or even Americans going to Europe as a way to broaden their um, their view, uh, meet potential collaborators, also learn a new language and, and another culture. So it's really, you know... It's spectacular. I mean, I, I, yeah. what you're describing is really the globalization of yeah. this uh, pursuit of uh, exploring the unknown. And... Mm -hmm. It is so encouraging given, you know, all of the stuff about how divisive the world is and this one is on this side and this one is on that side and the boundaries. And the fact is that, that the sciences are an example of exactly the opposite. I'm, look, I'm sure there are issues and political issues no matter what, but ultimately there's something about the pursuit of knowledge mm -hmm. that is able to transcend some of the most um, base 
political uh, divisions, and I, I, I think it's, it's really, really reassuring. I wonder, in terms of all of the things that are going on, at least in the popular imagination, man's space travel mm-hmm. has always been um, such a uh, inspiring, uh, exciting, and also in terms of publicity, it, it just captures the human imagination. Looking into the next 25 years, do you think that man's space travel is frankly passe or is there really any benefit to it beyond publicity and raising awareness like for the the largest pursuit of knowledge that astrophysics is based on does manned space travel make much sense to you at this stage uh i think it's a tough one in the sense that i i could I could answer your question in two different ways. One, which is in an aspirational sense, it's it's like it seems like the destiny of humankind to want to explore because that's what we've done throughout our lives on this planet. And we've sent a man on the moon. And so, yeah, the idea of having a person plant a flag on Mars is captures my imagination. I would I hope to see that someday. Is it should it be a priority um, given all the other investments that we could do and research both on this planet and but also you know building something that sends a robot to some of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter or even further out I explore interstellar space in ways that we haven't done so yet so if there's a finite budget and a finite number of resources should we spend them on sending someone on Mars and beyond or something else. Uh, At this point, I would probably say we should do something else because I think, first of all, that putting a person on Mars, you know, space is a very harsh environment for for all of us. Uh, Life, there's a lot of cosmic rays. There's lots of things that happen to the human body when you're in space uh, without gravity bone mass loss and, um, you know, possibly, you know, instance of cancers that come from all this unshielded uh, radiation that mm-hmm. we get. Again, sending a, a man to on Mars just for the purpose of saying we've done it has value um, in an aspirational sense, but may not have practical applications to our better understanding of the universe. But I think anything that we can do in in the area of space exploration, I find exciting. Um, I, I just I'm not sure I would endorse one thing versus another at yeah. this point. Yeah. yeah. So if one of the fascinations is with manned space travel, mm-hmm. certainly another one is this uh, ongoing quest to identify extraterrestrial life, mm-hmm. and which leads me to ask, did you ever, uh, did you ever visit Arecibo Observatory? I did not, and uh, <laughs> I feel kind of sad about, so Arecibo just suffered a collapse. It's a radio telescope in Puerto Rico that recently collapsed, actually. The, was damaged and it collapsed on December 1st, I think. And to make it even sadder, I guess they knew they had a drone. I don't know if you've seen the drone footage. I just, I just saw it today. Yeah. It's unbelievable. You, you yeah. actually see in real time the cable snapping yeah. and the 
uh, platform crashing down into the dish. It was really, really uh, hard to watch because it is such an iconic right. um, location. But, you know, one of the things they did, along with, of course, other observatories and with different scientists, uh, was involvement in the search for extraterrestrial mm -hmm. uh, intelligence, SETI, and this desire to identify extraterrestrial life does the, 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 do you have that bug too? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the most exciting um, area of research right now, or one of the most exciting. But for me, it really captures my imagination. I, you know, growing up, I when I told you that I came to the U.S. because I had a job opportunity, I was working. I came to work on a project to analyze the images of galaxies, uh, write some code to automatically classify them, so we could have these large scale surveys of the sky, know which ones were stars, which ones were galaxies, and then class, you know, build the large scale structure of the universe. I was part of a team to do that. And if you had told me back in those days, you know, if you'd asked me, will we ever be able to find out if one of these stars is a planet around it? I would have said, no. I mean, it's just planets don't really emit their light. We see stars because they radiate, you know, there's this nuclear fusion that takes place, they produce light, it reaches us and we see it. So to me, even the fact that we are able to discover that there are these little rocky planets orbiting around stars that are millions of light years away is like astounding, you know, that we've been able to get that technology right. And now the current senses of the universe suggest that you know, there's about a billion stars in our galaxy. On average, each star, each star, people think, has one planet, more or less, or one planet that could um, support life in some cases. Well, no, the percentage of planets that can support life is going to be smaller than one, but one can, that can be detected, let's say a few percentage of those might support life in terms of the Goldilocks. Uh, environment of, uh, you know, not too hot, not too cold. And the third number is that, right, there's probably something like a trillion star, a trillion galaxies in the universe. So if you just multiply these numbers, you see that there are so many places where some kind of life form could exist or, or could develop at some point. And what we don't know is how long does life survive on any one of these environments, right? Because we know the humankind has been around for a few thousand years, but we don't know that it's going to last for another hundreds of thousands or million on this planet. So you have to multiply this, this beautiful thing called the Drake equation that where you calculate, um, you know, what's the likeliness that there's an intelligent civilization living somewhere and why haven't we heard from them? So, well, this is the great question, right? Uh, right. That Fermi, the Fermi paradox, goes, exactly. okay, so if the equation suggests that it has to exist, where the hell is it? You know, and, and I think that that continues to be uh, the great uh, dialogue mm -hmm. uh, amongst uh, scientists. Um, and as you're suggesting, just because it's possible doesn't mean that we're going to be able to see it. Or if it did exist, it happened long before we came around and by the time the light reaches us they'll have been long gone and we will have been too so it, it it's 
the scale that you live in routinely the, uh, of distance and light, I think for most of us is literally incalculable mm -hmm. to understand truly the, the import of studying a galaxy that's 100 million light years away. And what that means in terms of by the time we see that light, how it correlates so far back in the past with where we are in this present moment. It, it's uh, mind-boggling. And, and, and the fact that it, it makes me think then how astounding it is that almost that over 100 years ago that Einstein came up with this general theory of relativity that changed completely the way we look at the universe, quite literally, and the fact that so much of what he said still is foundational to the work that astrophysicists are doing right now. And I, I wonder, as you look at it, what are the things that, in all of this stuff that just makes me lose my breath, um, what are the mysteries that you're looking at right now? Like, what, what is it that's since you're doing this research for researchers, what's, what are they looking for? What, what, what do they see up there? What, what's, what are the problems they're trying to solve, the questions they're trying to answer? So the search for life is, is the big one that we were just discussing. And, and just to be clear, right now that, you know, nobody's looking for green men on Mars or beyond, but we're looking for what they call biosignatures. Any sign that there may be, you know, mo most likely what might happen is that by analyzing the light going through the atmospheres of some of these planets, we'll detect that there's some gas in the atmosphere that is a, that it's likely being associated with a life form on that planet. So methane or uh, oxygen or ammonia. Um, are some of the biomarkers that could suggest, you know, this could be a place where life either um, can take place or that life uh, is present there. And there was recently an announcement about the uh, detection of um, phosphine in, in, on the atmosphere of Venus, where uh, some scientists said, well, this could be a sign that it supports some form of life, and now it, it's, not, it's been disputed. So. This is going to go on for quite a while because we're, we're working on instruments and telescopes that will be able to do more and more of these detections. Um, and, you know, again, you play the odds is that uh, out of so many planets um, and out of so many spectra that we'll be able to take of the atmospheres of these planets, we'll have to see how many come back with some promising signs for life. Well, one of the things you brought up, about the international nature of this work is that the science continues to get better and better in, in over short periods of time. It's really extraordinary how fast the technology is developing, which means also that there's a ton of data that's coming back that requires complex computers to analyze and then to I don't know, come out in a way that humans can begin to digest what it means and how all the pieces come together. Um, yeah, so uh, able to, so the idea is also being able to see further and further 
uh, the the more uh, galaxies, more uh, exoplanets, etc. Yeah. So we want to see, be able to see farther away, and that usually means having bigger ways. You know, bigger facilities. You need a bigger mirror to collect more light, and collecting more light means you can see further out. You can see fainter things, but also. Um, there's another project called LSST, a big telescope that is being developed now um, that will scan the sky more rapidly. And that's so that creates sort of a movie of the sky so that you can see night after night what changes in the sky. And the changes that people are looking for are changes in the orbits of some of the solar system planets. So if you have an asteroid that moves from day to day, you'll be able to detect it more clearly if you can compare you know, picture, a picture of the same area of the sky taken several days apart. But you also will detect things such as um, variation of luminosity in stars, galaxies. Um, some of them will be due to exactly the, what we were discussing, exoplanets. If you have a planet that transits in front of a star, there's a slight dip of luminosity from that star. So having these um, frequently uh, taken snapshots of the sky will provide information that so far has been difficult to come by because right now when we have a big valuable telescope, we only point it to one area and keep it on that area for a long period of time so that we can integrate all the signal coming from that area. So people have been going able to go deep or wide, but not both. And now we're trying to have instruments that can do both in a sort of cost-effective way. So some of them are orbiting telescopes and some of them are ground telescopes. But both of those provide ways to learn more about what's happening in, this, in, in the universe. So if we would say that the greatest mystery is intelligent life, if there's someone else out there, then I guess the, the question is, of perhaps ultimate interest to astrophysicists, which is, of course, around the Big Bang. What happened right before and immediately after? I know that, again, this is where my lack of <laughs> math really uh, kicks me because I know that scientists have been able to figure out pretty close to after the Big Bang uh, what happened. Uh, but, of course, right before is... Um, an enormous mystery that I know people have contemplated and I don't think from what I've read is really even at this stage is it really even possible to do anything other than surmise so imagine if you had like a an older man in front of you who uh, had a lousy science background uh, but um, was really fascinated by astrophysics how would you describe the Big Bang? The truth is that it's you know, it, it's a mystery to us in general, uh, meaning there's, there's multiple theories or explanations for what might have caused it and what might have happened in the, you know, fraction of seconds leading up to it and right after it. But none of the theory, well, so here's the thing that you can have a theory, but if it cannot be proven of, or disproven by an observation, then it's just as good as any other theory. And that's where we are right now. We don't have the means to 
ask questions that could allow us to choose one theory over another. Doesn't uh, that tick you off? <laughs> Don't you like, like, come on, yeah. man. Like, they're got, just that the, there is, they're just, it's kind of like, in a way, to me, the reality of human existence, whereas even you take the person you love most in the world and you realize in the end you can only get so close to who they are and what they're thinking and feeling. There's just, there is an ultimate existential separation between one person and the other. And I feel in a way the same way as sort of a, a, hum, a sentient being looking at the beginning of life. And there's just, like we're so <laughs> close, but just what? Like, and, and the fact that it could, it could be this, but it could be this, or, or right. no, both of those could be wrong. And, it, and there's so many very, or, or even, for instance, is the, the Big Bang something that happened and could only happen once? Or is the right. universe expanding, but ultimately does it come back together and it does the whole thing over again? Are there multiple universes? Yes. Uh, so there's the multiverse theory. Um, the, you know, there are, look, this stuff gets very exotic very quickly. There, you know, there's people who have postulated that we might be living in a simulation. This was this week, this month. Scientific American actually right. said there's a 50-50 chance that right. we are so living in a simulation. That's one of the problems that I have. Not just I have, but you know that is quite apparent. Is that if you you can speculate, and there's beautiful math that has been produced by multiple cosmologists to try to come up with uh, potentially new laws of physics so the grand unified theory that brings together quantum gravity with the other forces is kind of the holy grail right now of the phys you know the worlds of physics people working cosmology or high energy physics are really looking for something that ties it all together and answers some of the questions that even um, einstein wasn't able to solve like reconciling quantum physics with gravitation um, but the issue again is that, you know, in string theory is, does this, and there's multiple flavors of string theory. We don't yet have a way to think of an experiment that we can perform that can prove or disprove these theories in a convincing way. And so the high energy physicists want to build yet a larger collider at CERN that will cost, you know, 20 billion euros and smash things at 100 tera electron volts. And it may not give us any better answers than the one that we have now. So um, it, it's not yet clear that bigger uh, and more expensive is the solution to finding the answers that we're looking for. And it's also quite possible that you know certain experiments will not resolve um, between two or three of these theories altogether. And a theory that cannot be disproven is not very useful to us because then, you know, as the joke goes, you know, it's just a theory. So you can, <laughs> same way that some skeptics say, you know, the Big Bang is just a theory. So <laughs> I have my own theory that there was an angel that snapped his fingers and things came to be. So then it's really just speculation at that point. Alberto, so much of what you talk about, the distances we're talking about, the temperatures we're talking about, um, the complexity of gathering this information, the complexity of the instruments, how to 
download uh, that huge amount of information into intelligible pieces so that we can, instead of just be awed by the sheer size of the data field to actually be able to define it, refine it, and then use it. And all of that, and you hinted at it earlier on at the beginning of our conversation, is it possible to engage in this kind of work, including a spiritual sense of it all? I don't necessarily mean that as, is God involved? Is God the architect? Is it creationism? I, I, am, I am not there at all. But even though, as you were suggesting, you grew up being moved towards astronomy because as a kid, it was already something that was part of a knowledge set that you were, you were acquiring. Mm -hmm. By the way, what, what was the first planet you looked at? Well, the, the first object was the moon for sure. Right. And then it was Jupiter um, when my father pointed to Mars. And then I think the third one I saw was Saturn. And it was, you know, look, seeing the rings was the most impressive My things body. that I remember of because it's not just this dot, but you actually see structure that, well, Jupiter too, because you recognize the big red spot, but um, the rings of Saturn's were really what clinched it. Yeah, I'm sure that, that did it. So do you find a spiritual dimension to this work? Is it a conversation that you hear much amongst your colleagues? Is it assumed or is is there a sharp line in the sand between science and religion and never the twain shall meet. What do you, what do you pick up on? What is it like for you? First of all, not all scientists are atheists at all, right? So there's many people who are quite religious. At the same time, the rules of the road for a scientist uh, should not draw into any of their judgment things that are related to faith, uh, typically. I think for me, the, the sort of the more spiritual, spiritual aspects of that come into play and that relate to this kind of work are the ones that make you feel humble because of what you see um, in front of you. The fact that the life on this planet is so fragile and that the universe is so vast uh, really makes you feel that we are humankind and the earth is is a special place is a special uh, life is very special and that you know um it's here maybe for a, a particular reason that i don't know what that reason would be the other thing that i think always made me wonder is why are the laws of physics what they are? You know, we are here in part because the electron has a certain charge and a certain, and the proton has a certain mass. And there are relationships between, you know, the forces, the nuclear force, the weak force, the electromagnetic force. So what caused the universe to have these laws of physics that have led to, you know, this beautiful array of phenomena and and matter that we see when we look up in the sky. No one has an answer to it. And yeah, so obviously some theories will say, well, we are the one universe that has this set of laws, but there's an infinite number of other universes where 
the relationships will be different and we'll never know what the, what those are. But, you know, I think this then becomes a more of a philosophical discussion, but uh, I can't help but wonder, you know, it would, I would love to have an answer to that question, even if <laughs> the answer is speculative, but um, I find all of this very humbling and it's really helpful for me to be reminded of how, you know, special and lucky we are that we are even able to contemplate these conversations. I, I, I think that is a really beautiful place uh, to leave it for the time being because there is so much more. Um, but I think, as you've suggested, sometimes peripherally, just out of the corner of your eye, sometimes there's this sense that there's a greater structure. Right? There, there is somehow some scaffolding that takes all of this, all of these forces, and somehow balances them in a way to allow for this moment to be. And it is all the things that you described and more. Alberto Akamatsi, thank you so much for being on TBA Now. And we look forward to exploring the universe with you more in the future. Thank you, Rabbi. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.